This is an ABC podcast. Welcome back to the apocalypse. Yes, this is our series on science friction, all about wild events that could wipe us out. I'm Natasha Mitchell. And I'm Carl Smith from ABC Science. So we're talking natural happenings here, aren't we, Carl? Yeah, so far it's been solar storms and killer asteroids. Now, they were big. Yeah, they were, but this episode, was our species almost wiped out before? By an enormous volcanic eruption. The idea is that our ancestors were affected by some kind of catastrophe. Hidden in our DNA, there are clues of what looks like a crash in the global population of humans. So we're talking 100,000 years ago. The mystery was, why would such a bottleneck be evident in the genetic record? A genetic bottleneck? How does that reveal itself, Carl? What would that look like? Okay, by the late 1990s, DNA technology was allowing scientists to look at human genomes for the first time. And they noticed something strange. There wasn't much genetic variation among modern human groups. So one explanation for that could be that the species might have dwindled to just a really small population at some stage. A few survivors. I think the estimate was that we're all descended from perhaps 10,000 individuals. There was a suggestion at that point that humanity did get very, very close to extinction. And there was also evidence of rapid, sudden climate change in the fossil record around the same time. So was some kind of cataclysmic event responsible for this? Toba, at 74,000 years, a super eruption, fit the bill. This is how the Toba catastrophe theory was born. Professor Alan Cooper researches ancient DNA. Because the power of the eruption was thought to have been so catastrophic that many human populations would have been destroyed. Toba was a volcanic eruption to rival all others, so enormous that its effects were felt worldwide for years. Volcanologist Dr Jill Jolly. It did lead to failure of crops around the world. Habitats were severely impacted. It's hard to imagine, though, one volcano, even a super volcano, wiping out nearly all of humanity across all of the planet. Could that even be possible? Well, let's try and get a sense of how catastrophic Toba was when it blew its top. Lake Toba is formed in the world's biggest volcanic crater in Sumatra. Professor Stephen Sparks is a volcanologist at Bristol University. And it formed as a consequence of more or less the largest volcanic eruption we know in Earth's history, or one of them. It erupted an absolutely astonishing amount of magma in the form of volcanic ash something like 2,000 cubic kilometres of material was erupted. I'm just getting my head around that. 2,000 cubic kilometres. That's 2,000 cubes, a kilometre each side, filled with ash. Mm -hmm. Huge amounts. The Earth basically collapsed into the hole from where all this stuff came from and formed the giant crater. Tell me about the impact of something that enormous. Locally, there would be complete devastation to distances of at least 100 kilometres. More regionally, there would have been volcanic ash 
over many of the parts of Southeast Asia and India and probably led to an awful lot of loss of life, even much further away from the volcano. So that was the impact of the explosion itself. But then here's what came afterwards huge amount of dust and volcanic pollution put into the atmosphere and this changes the climate. Right around the globe, crop failures, lack of food, a volcanic winter that may have lasted years or decades. What a picture. I mean, that is such a chilling scenario for life on Earth. In the case of Toba, some computer models have been done which suggest that the Earth generally for the following year would have been uh, perhaps 10 or 15 degrees centigrade colder than average. Certainly global temperatures did fall at that particular point in time and they lasted for several thousand years. That's Professor Bert Roberts, Director of the Centre for Archaeological Science at the University of Wollongong. So you can see how one volcano could threaten our existence, but there's controversy over just how big Toba's legacy was for humans at that time. Right, so we're going to pick apart forensically this explosion. Yeah, now we don't have anything like first-hand records from 74,000 years ago, but one of the largest eruptions in recorded history was right near Lake Toba, and that's Krakatoa in 1883. Yeah, Krakatoa was a big one. Ash, kilometres, I mean tens of kilometres uh, into the air. People as far away as Perth in Western Australia, around 3,000 kilometres from the volcano, heard it as a gunshot. In fact, that sound wave rumbled around the world four times, registering as air pressure spikes in barometres across the globe. And I really like this account that you dug up from a captain on a British ship at the time. He wrote these words in his ship's log. So violent are the explosions that the eardrums of over half my crew have been shattered. My last thoughts are with my dear wife. I'm convinced that the day of judgment has come. The island this volcano sat on was obliterated, along with much of the nearby archipelago. Molten rock, ash and pollution spewed out. Tsunamis followed. At least 36,000 people died. Give us a sense of how Krakatoa was experienced globally. Well, its ash caused average temperatures in the northern hemisphere to drop by a little over one degree centigrade. Wow. These are massive events. I mean, it's hard to really get our minds around the scale of these things because hardly anybody's witnessed anything of this magnitude. Krakatoa impressed people, but actually it was no more than a little burp compared to Toba. Of the three apocalyptic events that we're looking at in this series, this one scares me the most. Is that because they're so uncontrollable or, or because their effects could be really global? Well, yeah, there's that, but also they're reasonably common. Here's Professor Stephen Sparks again. Eruptions like Krakatoa, which maybe erupt, let's say, 10 cubic kilometres. There's probably one or two of those every century. These weren't as big as Toba, though. That one spewed out 200 times the ash of Krakatoa or thereabouts. So how frequent have eruptions of Toba's scale been? Right, so eruptions are categorised based on how much volcanic material they launch into the atmosphere. And for Toba, we heard that was roughly 2,000 cubic kilometres. So that makes it a super eruption. Yeah. A super eruption is defined essentially as any eruption which erupts more than 400 cubic kilometres material. And in 2018, Stephen Sparks crunched the numbers on how often these happen. Well, the frequency is 20,000 years. Which is way more common than researchers had imagined. 
when we use our statistics to work out, if you like, how how confident we are in that 20,000-year figure, then we actually find that it could be as little as 10,000, but it could be as much as 45,000. Whatever figure it is in that range, it's still a lot um, more frequent than previously believed. So that means a Krakatoa a couple of times each century and a Toba roughly every 20,000 years. Exactly. And Stephen says there are loads of hotspots around the globe where a super eruption could happen. Some colleagues of mine identified around 100 volcanoes around the world which they thought had characteristics that you might expect of a volcano which had the potential for a future super eruption. Okay, that's scary. That's 100 Tobas just waiting around to explode. The last one we know about actually happened in New Zealand in about 26,000 years ago. That eruption, it formed Lake Taupo, right in the middle of New Zealand's North Island. And Taupo is still an active supervolcano. Yeah, so how do we know if a volcano like that is gearing up to explode again? So it's a bit like, you know, trying to do a a forensic study. Volcanologist Dr Jill Jolly runs the Natural Hazards Division of New Zealand's geological research organisation, GNS Science. Uh, my other role is as co-chair of the World Organisation of Volcano Observatories. So it's her job to keep an eye out for any signs of the next big eruption. If we take Lake Topor, for example, which is probably one of my worst nightmares, most likely the first thing we would spot would be seismic activity. So we have a network of earthquake monitoring instruments around the volcano. Now as the magma is pushing its way to the surface, it's kind of pushing itself through cracks and that's what's causing the earthquakes. But it's also pushing the ground out of the way so you can see the ground moving. Now we're measuring generally movements of centimetres or perhaps millimetres even. So that's the second. And the third method is to look at the emissions from the volcano. So you bring together all these different disciplines, put together all these different clues. You can think of a volcano as a spout where the molten magma below Earth's crust can bubble up. And we can see an eruption coming by looking for those signs of the pressure building up below the surface. So based on those clues, how capable are we now of detecting when an eruption is coming? It's highly dependent on the country. There are some volcanoes globally which are absolutely fantastically monitored. And Mount Etna would be one of those, or Kilauea volcano in Hawaii. There are other volcanoes around the world which have next to nothing or nothing. We're getting better at monitoring, but I I often refer to volcano monitoring as a bit like weather forecasting, but you actually can't see the weather. There's no way of actually seeing where the magma is in the volcano. Isn't that a little scary, given the potential (laughs) impact for one of these explosions? Uh, it, it, It is, yes. And even with the volcanoes with the best monitoring, we don't always have a lot of warning. That time interval that you have from the first signals that you start to see to eruption can be as short as a few days. Sometimes it can be as long as years. If it was a super eruption, one of the really big ones, Mm -hmm. would we have more telltale signs? You would hope so. If I was to put my, my house on it, I would say yes. 
So we know supervolcanoes are destructive. They're in many parts of the world, they explode pretty often, and they're sometimes predictable, but they're sometimes not. But given this series is all about matters apocalyptic, could one super eruption really cause enough havoc to wipe humans out for good? Okay, well, I think it's time to return to the Toba catastrophe theory. That's the idea that an eruption in Sumatra 74,000 years ago nearly did wipe us out. And the clues for that theory? They can be found in our DNA. So when some of the first studies were done on human genetic diversity... Professor Alan Cooper is director of the Australian Centre for Ancient DNA. They mapped different human populations and were very surprised to see this remarkable lack of genetic diversity in all populations outside of Africa and then this huge diversity inside Africa demonstrating that only a small portion of the genetic diversity, and therefore presumably the population, had come out of Africa and rapidly spread around the world. So the Toba theory is that humans had migrated right around the world. And then, so the theory goes, they were nearly wiped out by the Toba explosion and the climate change that followed. The only survivors of that blast were in Africa. Then, from Africa, they eventually migrated out to the rest of the world and re-established. But because only a small group of humans were leaving Africa, they exhibit lower genetic diversity than those that remained in Africa. So the allegation here is that Toba was a flashpoint in the history of humans, a bottleneck effectively for the species. Yeah, that was the theory. But as genetic research has continued to improve, new data has begun to poke holes in this theory. And it all comes down to timing. One of the first things we did as people came out of Africa was to actually breed with a Neanderthal, or several Neanderthals. Okay, so where's this going? Sex with Neanderthals. What does that tell us about genetic diversity and the movement of humans? The Neanderthal DNA actually allows us to tell when they moved due to a quite clever set of analyses. We can calculate fairly precisely that that Neanderthal mixing with the population coming out of Africa was about 50 to 55,000 years ago. At the same time, other teams were finding evidence of Neanderthals in Europe, but not in Africa. So suddenly, a new story started to emerge. Instead of humans existing everywhere around the world, then being wiped out by the Toba eruption 74,000 years ago, except for a small pocket in Africa, this new evidence seems to show humans only started to settle for the first time outside Africa well after Toba, around 50 to 55,000 years ago. So the genetic bottleneck we can see in modern humans dates to an event that is a, a long time after the actual eruption. And clearly, those two can't be connected. Well, this was a nail in the coffin for the Toba catastrophe theory. The supervolcano with its volcanic winter wasn't as deadly to our species as we'd thought. It's a nice way of selling a grant and it's a nice way of telling a story is to sort of frame it within this volcanic winter hypothesis. Professor Zenobia Jacobs is an archaeologist from the University of Wollongong. So, Carl, she's recently come out swinging against the Toba catastrophe theory in another way. Her research is suggesting that some humans in Africa didn't just survive Toba, but they thrived afterwards. Yeah, and to come to that conclusion, she's been studying archaeological remains in Africa from the time Toba erupted. The reason we said they thrive through that is because we actually see an increase in occupation around that time rather than a decrease. 
How could humans, no matter where they lived, possibly thrive after a super eruption? Yeah, it is provocative, but it's also true. <laughs> so this period of time in Southern African archaeology is a very rich period. We see all sorts of symbolic behaviours that's never been seen before. She and her team looked for ancient human sites in Africa and dug down through the layers. In the same layers of rock that were filled with Toba's ancient ash, they found archaeological remains that seemed to show civilizations were flourishing. So human artefacts like tools and that kind of thing. Exactly. So that paints a very different picture of how this volcano affected humans at the time. They, they revved up, they got busy, they got industrious. Maybe, although keep in mind they've only studied a few sites in a small pocket of Africa, but Professor Jacobs reckons this supervolcano led to more activity, not less. I think it is probably quite a localised effect with some effects that ripples on globally, but not of the idea of a volcanic winter that caused all these extinctions globally. Right, so let's take stock here, Carl. The supervolcanic apocalypse that scientists thought almost wiped out humans for good, in fact didn't. Certainly modern humans. Well, I asked Alan Cooper about that, and he wonders if Toba hit our near relatives, who were also technically humans, instead. Yeah, the, the confusion here is that humans, technically speaking, includes the Denisovans and the Nanatools. So we try and distinguish between the two as archaic humans and anatomically modern humans. But certainly, anatomically modern humans, us lot that have got out of Africa recently, we can't see a Toba impact in the genetics. Alan Cooper says there's evidence those archaic humans, our cousin species, were living in the area at that time. While people might have accurately said Toba caused a big human turnover, they might have missed it by one. For example, in Ireland, Southeast Asia, we've got several groups. We think we've got Homo erectus living still on Java. We've got these Denisovans, these strange Neanderthal-like creatures that are in the Eastern Asia. They seem to be down in Ireland, Southeast Asia as well. We've got a finger bone that we can't quite identify from the Philippines. Clearly, there's a lot of early human groups in the area. And it's probably pretty likely that Toba would have been a massive concern for those populations. Unfortunately, because we don't have genetic records from them, we have very few fossils at all, we can't tell quite how bad it was for those archaic humans. I wouldn't mind betting we will see when we finally get decent genome records from that group a fairly significant impact. I agree. I think the magnitude of it definitely had the capability of pushing those cousins, if you want, to the brink of extinction. And that's a wonderful hypothesis, but it is incredibly difficult to test. Zenobia Jacobs. And archaeologist Bert Roberts says even if it didn't completely wipe out those species, it might have still caused local extinctions. Biologists often talk about extirpations being local extinctions rather than global extinctions. So I'm sure there were many extirpations in Southeast Asia of different species and indeed of the humans. OK, so after all this, though, there's still no firm evidence, is there? linking the Toba eruption to any outright extinctions of human species. That's right. But I think what strikes me about these super eruptions is that everyone agrees they could certainly push our species to the brink of extinction. We thought that they did for quite some time. And as we heard in previous episodes of this series, I think apocalypse for us and for our society could also be the end of life as we know it. And I think super eruptions have the capacity to do that. Yeah. So let's fast forward then to the present and consider, Carl, what would happen to us now if we had an eruption of Toba's magnitude today? 
Of course, the next big one actually predicted is Yellowstone. And that's been predicted for a while that that could be an absolute whopper. The Yellowstone supervolcano is in the western United States, and it sits under a popular destination for nature lovers, the world-famous Yellowstone National Park. It is very well monitored, but it is one of those eruptions that if it were to go big time, then it would have a major impact on North America. The crops, the breadbasket of America, would get severely impacted infrastructure. One thing that we don't fully understand is when there's a lot of ash of that, that kind of eruption into the atmosphere, what impact would that have on global telecommunications, for example? And we saw the eruption a few years ago of the Icelandic volcano, Pajafekjö Jökull. Yeah, you'll remember that volcano with the unpronounceable name that journalists got totally tongue-tied over. An ash cloud from an Icelandic volcano paralysed northern Europe. Eja Flaja Jakur Eja Volek Vol Eja Fjalla Jökull Eja means island, Fjalla means mountain and Jökull means glacier. And just that really quite a small eruption, the economic impact it had in terms of kind of supply of food and other goods, people moving around the globe. You can imagine a super eruption like Yellowstone had that, that would impact on the global economy. So it's almost unimaginable. And what about the potential risk for, for wiping out our species then? Possibly. I wouldn't rule it out. But uh, I think humanity is tremendously adaptable. I don't think an extinction is likely, but if you mean by apocalyptic, whether the world would be able to support 7 billion people, I think that's pretty unlikely. I mean, the world would actually be really set back on its heels by quite a way. And then you say, well, it's not going to last a few years, it's going to last a few decades. I mean, that's people's entire lifetimes. So if one did come, well, I'd rather not be here to see it, to be honest with you. It's a whole different world. I mean, it is going to be one of those sci-fi movies where you move into the world after the apocalypse. What would it be like? Okay. See why I'm terrified by volcanoes? I do. I'm heading to my bunker with Masaka supplies right now, Carl. Is there anything then we would be able to do if all the science suggests that Yellowstone is about to erupt? I think the answer at the moment is not very much. Professor Stephen Sparks from Bristol University. We might be able to do something about early warning. Whether we could stop it, I think, is very doubtful. He says the best and really the only idea for how we might be able to stop an eruption is to siphon off the heat building underneath a volcano using water or some kind of liquid. That sounds like a totally half-baked plan to me, and this was proposed by a NASA scientist specifically for Yellowstone. But I don't think anyone's really convinced. Well, maybe you could drill into the top of it and cool it down, extract the heat and make it solidify so it would never erupt. But I think they estimated about 19,000 years to actually solidify it, and that's rather a long time. Yeah, it makes sense, but not hugely practical, and it's certainly not tested. It is not sounding hopeful to me that we could do anything to mitigate the impacts of a supervolcano. Probably the best option is evacuate, run and hide, hope the world around us doesn't change so much that society can't carry on afterwards. So summing up, uh, super eruptions, they're reasonably common, our monitoring is patchy, doesn't give us much warning. They have a global impact and they'd cause some major problems for humanity and life on Earth, which is why of the three natural disasters we've looked at in this series, this one seems the most threatening to me. But. 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 
but we've only looked at natural threats so far in this series. So our three examples were... Solar events, volcanoes and asteroids. But I was curious whether the scientists I talked to thought these were truly the biggest risks to humanity. And it's interesting, when you put this question to them, they all came up with strikingly similar answers. They did. Human nature, in some ways, is maybe our worst enemy. You'd be tempted to say man itself. (laughs) I'm probably far more worried about mankind and what it can do to itself. It'd be a pandemic. It would be a disease of some variety. Nuclear conflict, global warming and climate change. To be honest, it's global warming that keeps me awake at night, not so much asteroids. The climate changes which we're forcing upon ourselves very, very rapidly. We're quite good at dealing with certain types of risk. So ones that have an immediate consequence. But there's other types of risk, I think, that we are not really well disposed to dealing with. And those are the risks where it's not immediately obvious. And so that applies to space weather, but it applies to all sorts of other ones. And of course, the other big one in that regard would be climate change. It's the same treatment of the problem of both climate change and space stuff. It's always kind of this laissez-faire type, it's going to happen in the future, we'll worry about it later, but that's not the way to solve it. I think people will probably cause their own extinction and maybe not that far into the future. So until we actually grow up as a species and start to learn to cooperate better, I think we're destined to be the masters of our own destruction. So the ultimate existential threat, folks, is us. us. I mean, that's a really sobering conclusion. But it makes sense. I mean, if we're suddenly at a point in history where we can possibly maybe save our species from an apocalypse, that probably also means we have the power to wipe ourselves out. It's a bittersweet conclusion for our series, The Apocalypse. Thank you to our studio engineer, Brendan O'Neill, for all those explosions. And thank you to Carl, my colleague Carl Smith here in ABC Science. Thanks, Natasha. I'll see you next time. Really hope so. And check out all the offerings on ABC Science online. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.